Hello, welcome to Rob's Records, episode six, Stranger in My Own Hometown. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? I fooled you. So since the last show, I don't know if you've seen that there's going to be a 30th anniversary release of Come On Feel The Lemonheads. Um, I think the uh, the album before that, the It's A Shame About Ray, I think, yeah, well I know, last year um, Evan Dando was touring as The Lemonheads and he was performing the album in its entirety and he did come to Norwich. I was going to go and I thought twice about it because I thought, uh, I like the album. I've seen some of this live stuff back in the day, in the 90s, 
I mean, it was similar to when I went to see Brian uh, Brian Wilson uh, perform Pet Sounds in its entirety in uh, 2015, I think it was, or 2016. And I was so disappointed. So I thought, right, keep the memory fresh, don't go. And then subsequently, I read loads of reviews about how terrible he sounded and the sound was all crap and, and what have you. But I've been catching up some of the stuff on uh, YouTube. They do post some bits. I follow him on Instagram and, uh, yeah, he seems to be getting himself together. So, yes, in, at the last show, I mentioned about the Humble cassette. So this show, obviously, I will talk to you about the cassette, talk to you a little about playlists or mixtapes, those things, uh, a list of some of the things or <clears throat> ideas that I used to use or themes for when I would create my own playlists and um, well hopefully you know you might use them, uh, you may not and as a treat I've created a playlist for you on Spotify which I'll share to the Facebook page which incidentally is www.facebook.com forward slash Rob's Records Podcast or similarly, if you want to be on Instagram, it's Rob's Records underscore pod. So I'll also post the link on there once I figure out how to do it. But yes, the Humble Cassette or the Compact Cassette, also commonly called a cassette tape, audio cassette, or simply tape or cassette. So here's a little bit of history for you. Um, so in 1935, AEG released the first reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder with the commercial name Magnetophon. Catchy. It was based on the invention of the magnetic tape by Fritz Flumer in 1928. So these machines were very expensive and relatively difficult to use and were therefore used mostly by professionals in radio studios and recording studios. So after the Second World War, the magnetic tape recording technology proliferated across the world. In the US, Ampex, using equipment obtained in Germany as a starting point, began commercial production of tape recorders. So interestingly, when the, during the Second World War, when the spies would try to listen into like radio frequencies being broadcast in Germany, they came across this absolutely crystal clear um, orchestral uh, music. And they were thinking, hang on, this is like two o'clock in the morning. What are this bad? Yeah, what? Yeah, it must be live to have this amount of, of clarity. But what it was, it was a pre-recording, uh, uh, a pre-recording, and it was on this magnetic tape. And so the fidelity was absolutely, you know, mind-blowing. And so they were like, what the hell? So, you know, one of the uh, many things, good things, to come out of the Second World War was the uh, magnetic tape. I mean, obviously, there's a load of horrible things which came out of the Second World War, but don't need to go into those now, we all know that, and it's a terrible thing to, uh, to even contemplate in this day and age, although we can see that happening in other parts of the world, rather sadly. So, so these tape recorders were first used in studios to record radio programs. Tape recorders quickly found their way into schools and homes, and by 1953, one million US homes had tape machines. So in 1958, following four years of development, RCA Victor introduced the stereo quarter-inch reversible reel-to-reel -reel RCA tape cartridge. So the cartridge was you know, pretty large, I think it was uh, five inches by seven, so quite a large thing, and, and few pre-recorded tapes were offered. So despite the multiple versions of this, it failed. So consumer use of magnetic tape machines took off in the early 1960s. So after playback machines reached a comfortable user-friendly design. 
This was aided by the introduction of transistors, which replaced the bulky, fragile and costly vacuum tubes of earlier design. Reel-to-reel -reel tape then became more suitable for household use, but still remained an esoteric project. In the early 1960s, Philip Eindhoven tasked two different teams to design a tape cartridge for thinner and narrower tape compared to what was used in reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. So Philip selected the two-spool cartridge as a winner and introduced it to Europe on the 30th of August 1963 at the Berlin Radio Show. And in the 19, sorry, and in the United States in November 1964, the trademark name Compact Cassette came a year later. The team of Dutch and Belgian origin at Philips was led by Dutch Luwattens in Haslet, Belgium. So Luwattens is uh, remember that name. I do a brief history of the playlist later, and his name does crop up. Philips also offered a machine to play the record, uh, play and record the cassettes, the Philips Type EL3300. So an updated model, Type EL3301, was offered in the US in November 1964. So by the end of the 1960s, the cassette business was worth an estimated $150 million. By the early 1970s, the compact cassette machines were outselling other types of tape machine by a large mar margin. Philips was competing with Telefunken and Grundig with their DC international format in a race to establish its cassette world as a worldwide standard, and it wanted support from Japanese electronic manufacturers. Philips compact cassette became dominant as a result of Sony pressurizing Philips to license the format to them for free. In the early years, sound quality was mediocre, but improved dramatically by the early 1970s when it caught up with the quality of 8-track tape and kept improving. The compact cassette went on to become a popular alternative to 12-inch vinyl records during the late 1970s. The mass production of blank, so not yet recorded, compact cassettes began in 1964 in Hanover, Germany. Pre-recorded music cassettes were launched in Europe in the late 1965. The Mercury Record Company, a US affiliate of Philips, introduced the cassette to the US in July 1966 and the, the initial offering just consisted of 49 titles. However, the system had been designed initially for dictation and portable use with the audio quality of early players not well suited for music. So some earlier models also had unreliable mechanical designs. So in 1971, the Advent Corporation introduced their Model 201 tape deck that combined Dolby Type B noise reduction and a chromium oxide tape. So this was a commercial grade tape, which basically resulted in the format being taken more seriously for musical use and the starting of the era of high fidelity cassettes and players. So although the birth and growth of the cassette began in the 1960s, its cultural movement, sorry, its cultural moment took place during the 1970s and the 1980s. The cassette's popularity grew during these years as a result of being more, more effective, convenient and portable ways of listening to music. Stereo tape decks and boom boxes became some of the most highly sought after consumer products of both decades. Portable pocket recorders and high fidelity hi-fi players such as Sony's Walkman which was released in 1979 also enabled users to take their music with them anywhere with ease. The increasing user friendliness of the cassette led to its popularity around the globe. 
Like the transistor radio in the 1950s and 60s, the portable CD player in the 19 and the portable CD player in the 1990s and the MP3 player in the 2000s, the Walkman defined the portable music market for the decade of the 80s with cassette sales overtaking those of LPs. Total vinyl sales remained higher well into the 1980s due to greater sales of singles, although cassette singles achieved popularity for a period in the 1990s. I think I brought a couple of those. I think I got Knocking on Heaven's Door by Guns N' Roses when they performed it live at, I oh know, I don't know. Was it that? I think it might have been a B-side to it. It might have been yesterday they released and the uh, Knock on Heaven's Door from the Freddie Mercury tribute concert was the B-side. So another barrier to cassettes overtaking vinyl and sales was shoplifting. So although they may have been more in circulation, because they were so small, they were, people could easily just pick them up, put them in their pockets, walk around and uh, then leave the shop. So that's before they had those weird magnetic things that go off if you had the slightest bit of metal in you pocket. So between 1985 and 1992 the cassette tape was the most popular format in the UK and record labels experimented with innovative packaging designs. A designer during the era, a designer during the era explained there was so much money in the industry at the time we could try anything with design. The introduction of the cassette single called the Cassingle was also part of this era and featured a music single in compact cassette form. So compact cassettes served as catalysts for social change. Their small size, durability and ease of copying helped bring underground rock and punk music behind the Iron Curtain, creating a footfold for Western culture among the younger generations. Likewise in Egypt, cassettes empowered an unprecedented number of people to create culture, circulate information and challenge ruling regimes before the internet became publicly accessible. So until 2005, cassettes remained the dominant medium for purchasing and listening to music in some developing countries, but compact discs technology had superseded the compact cassette in the vast majority of music markets throughout the world by this time. So by 1993, annual shipments of CD players had reached 5 million, up 21% from the year before, whilst cassette player shipments had dropped 7% to approximately 3.4 million. By the early 2000s, the CD player rapidly replaced the cassette player as a default audio component in the majority of new vehicles in Europe and America. So sales of pre-recorded music cassettes in the US dropped from 442 million in 1990 to just 274,000 by 2007. In the, in the mid to late 2010s, cassette sales saw a modest resurgence concurrent with the vinyl revival as early as 2015, the retail chain Urban Outfitters, which had long sold LPs, started selling new pre-recorded cassettes, both old and new albums, blank cassettes and players. In 2016, cassette sales increased, a trend that continued in 2017 and 2018, and in the UK, sales of cassette tapes in 2021 reached its highest number since 2003. Cassette tapes, I should also add, were also used in early home computers such as the Acorn Electron and the ZX Spectrum Plus 2. Which were the ones I had anyway. Yes, I know there were more. And um, I read somewhere a long time ago, and the equivalent of starting up your PC now for it to just get loaded in the home screen, which takes probably, I don't know, five, 10 seconds, maybe 15 if you've got an older computer with loads of crap on it. The equivalent that it would take for a cassette tape to do would be, I think, was a week. So there we go. 
But in terms of the cassettes, I think for me, I remember recording songs from the radio, normally the top 40 charts, and you know, annoyingly when the DJ would talk over the songs at the beginning or the end, or you'd get some interference, like a bird would land on your aerial or something else, and that'd just ruin the song. But yes, I can understand why they did it, because they just didn't want people copying the song in its entirety and not buying the, the singles. But, you know, that's all I could afford at the time. But when I could afford to purchase my own albums, I think the first album I got on cassette, I think it was a Malcolm McLaren. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was bought for me by my brother with my money. But then the first one that I bought was Usual Illusion 1. Because I didn't have enough money. I think it was 10.99. And I didn't have the 12.99 or 13.99 to get the CD album which I kind of regret, I ended up buying it on um, CD at a later date because what it was, I lent this girl, Julie Sanderson, my usual illusion one, when I was dating it, and then we split up and I never got it back, and I thought, well, you know, you just have to uh, put up with it and stuff. Yeah, I mean, cassette tapes, it used to be, you know, the blank ones and stuff, I'd always go for the TDK, like metallic ones, better high quality, and on a Sunday, I would sit down, Sunday afternoon, and I'd create the mixtape that I would then listen to on my way into college on Monday. And I'd probably have that on for the rest of the week, just listening to all different bits. And I remember when I, when I DJed at the Brunswick, when I used to come up with the set list, I'd put it all onto the tape. And so I'd walk along and I'd be like, right, okay, yeah, it kind of works, it flows. But it, it's the good thing about the cassettes though, is that you were almost too scared to forward it to the next song because it was just like, well, you know, I don't want to waste the batteries. And there was nothing worse than setting off on a journey and then five minutes into it, your batteries die. Which was one of the reasons why I love my Sony Walkman so much, because when I got it for Christmas, it had a rechargeable battery. And so that would just be like, boom, perfect. Or I think my brother's one had a rechargeable battery, but also this little attachment that you could put one AA battery in and whack it on the side and then that would power it. And oh, it was amazing. And it had the internal thing, so once it got to the end of the side, it would then flick back and reverse. So I probably started making mixtapes when I was about 14. As I say, mainly to take to work, just to take away the boredom of serving teas and coffees, and also when I do my uh, long walks to, to work. But I think today, I don't know about you guys, Mixtapes, you know, they're a lost art because, you know, people, yes, people make them on CDs now if they, you know, do have CDs. But mainly, the only place I see playlists are on, or mixtapes, if you want to call them that, are on Spotify. And I just find them shockingly bad. Obviously, there's the ones which are created by an algorithm from the, you know, which I think takes away a lot of, you know, the, the thought behind something. It's just like, well, if you like this, you'll like this. And it's like, well, yeah, but. You want to flow to it. You want it to be able to tell a story. I think that's the you know, beauty of these tapes. And being on two sides, it's almost like you could have one kind of theme, like rock, on one side. The other side could be unplugged. You never know. But, you know, there was all these things that you could do. Or you could just carry on, you know, 90-odd minutes and stuff. Or some of the playlists I've seen on Spotify, there's just, like, a number of songs from the artist in a row. And for me, that's like a big no-no when you're doing a mixtape. You don't really want to place two artists, you know, or the same artists or bands right next to each other. Unless, of course, you're doing like a theme. Say, for example, I don't know, you started off with a solo John Lennon 
solo McCartney, solo George Harrison, solo Ringo Starr, and then you ended up with, I don't know, a Beatles song sung by John Lennon. So you've got that gap between that first and the fifth song. That's a theme, that would work. But yeah, I just, I just don't get the playlists now. I have created a playlist for you, which I'll get onto in a moment. But first, I just want to give you a very brief history of the playlist. So in 1918, an apparatus, an apparatus that automatically changed records is patented, leading to one of the first selective jukeboxes being introduced in 1927. Uh, in 1935, American radio personality Walter Witchell coins the term disc jockey to describe radio announcer Martin Block, the first person to gain fame for playing popular recorded music over the air. 1964, the mass production of blank compact cassette tapes begins in Hanover, Germany, eventually allowing consumers to record and reorder music. 1971, Motown Chartbusters Volume 3 becomes the first non-soundtrack compilation album to reach number one in the UK charts. 1972, the first recorded use of the word playlist occurs used to describe the curations of radio DJs in America. 1982, CDs are first made available to the public and quickly become the most efficient way of storing music. 2001, Apple released the iPod, allowing you to create and shuffle your own library of digital music. 2001, Rhapsody, later known as Napster, becomes the first streaming on-demand subscription service to offer unlimited access to a library of digital music. And then finally, 2005, Streaming service Pandora Radio uses algorithms and complex song sorting programs to create personalized radio stations based on listeners' preferences. I know that creating a mixtape or playlist can be very down to individuals' tastes, but having said that, I've drawn up a list of my do's and don'ts when I create a playlist. You may wish to use them or totally disregard them. If you want to add in some comments, I'll post my playlist up onto the Facebook page, which I told you about, Rod's Records Podcast. Um, if you want to comment in there about where I've gone wrong, perhaps, or some of the ideas that you have when you do your own mixtapes, please do feel free. So here is a list of things that I would do, the do's and don'ts. So select a theme or pers purpose for the person stroke mixtape. Start off strong, but not too obvious. So if you're doing it for a girl that you like, don't start off with like that. I love you. Don't make it too obscure either. You're trying to make a tape to express something or yourself. Not let them know how wonderful you think your musical tastes are. It's not all about you. Try and throw in a good song from a band or artist they don't necessarily like too much. Or not, if they really feel really strongly about that said band stroke artist. And here, I mentioned this earlier, don't put two songs by the same band, artist, back to back, unless it's going to add to a theme. So take your time, don't rush it. And remember, there's two sides, as I said, a theme for each, electric, unplugged, 60s, 90s. And try not to leave too long a gap at the end of the tape. Make a note of how long each song is and aim for about 45 minutes. If you can go for like 45 and a half, Chances are you'll get it on. Sometimes it used to be the thing, you'd be like, oh God, I've got to get it. So you, you know, they'd almost force you into thinking of what that last song would be on that, you know, um, side. If you only had like a minute and a half, you might think, oh, I know, I've got something here that I could uh, whack in. And then throw, uh, tr throw in some songs that they might know 
or that you both share a memory with. But don't start the tape with this song, maybe halfway through side one and then again maybe on side two. And if you're going to add in some obscure or risky tunes, be sure to have something they recognise straight afterwards to cleanse the palate. Maybe use the previous pointer as an amuse-bouche. Uh, use a fairly decent quality tape. You don't want your tape to sound like it's been playing through a wet sock wrapped in an old newspaper. Listen back to the running order and ensure that it flows. If in doubt, listen to the last song and then stop. Sit or lay there or whatever you want to do and think about what could follow. Don't assume that throwing a bunch of songs together will be enough. You're making your own concept album. Remember that. Don't fill the tape regardless. If you're struggling, opt for a 60 minute mix instead of 90 minutes. End strong. If there's a message you want to put across, now's your chance. This will be the last song they hear and it'll probably be the one that sticks with them longer and at the end of it they go, ah, yes. And finally, don't be afraid to scrap it and start again. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. So onto my mixtape for you guys. I've opted for something quite chillaxing. If you want to mention it, if you want to, as a coin of phrase, you should enjoy it. I hope you do. Put it on the background. It's something nice, maybe on a Sunday, if you're recovering from the Saturday or you just fancy putting it on whilst you're getting the uh, Sunday roast sorted out. But this next song is from that mixtape or whatever you want to call it, playlist. I guess it's a playlist. It's not on a tape, is it? It's kind of gone into the thing of like playing an obscure song, which is quite good that they may have heard of or have heard of that person before and thought, what the hell? No way. So this song is by Yoko Ono. See, originally, so now you're thinking already, Yoko Ono, oh my God, what's going to be five minutes of someone going, ah, 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 ah. But it isn't. It's a really nice tune. I'm not too certain what album it's from off the top of my head, but enjoy the next song. Uh, you you know you deserve it. You listen to me for go on about mixtapes and cassette tapes and all sorts. So uh, I need to have a drink and a rest. So um, here you go. Here's I have a woman inside my soul by Yoko Ono. Cause me, but I don't know. 
So next up is uh, Rob's Wikipedia ripoffs. I still haven't come up with a good name for that. Um, I should do really, because uh, it's pretty obvious what I'm doing, isn't it? Anyway, so this artist that I wanted to draw to your attention was one that I saw at the Jazz Cafe, ooh, probably 2001, 2002. We were upstairs, because uh, we had a meal, so I decided it'd be a good idea to sit up there instead of downstairs watching the band. But unbeknownst to us, our table was right near where the artist comes out from the dressing room to where they are. So I stood up and turned around and the guy was there. So I shook his hand and I was like, wow. And I introduced him to my two brothers, you know, as if I knew him and I was introducing him to my brothers. But amazing artist. You may or may not have heard of him. Um, but the person I want to talk about is someone called Terry Callier. Um, so Terry Callier was born in the north side of Chicago, Illinois, and was raised in the Cabrini Green housing area. He learned piano 
and was a childhood friend of Curtis Mayfield, Major Lance and Jerry Butler and began singing in doo-wop groups in his teens. In 1962, he took an audition at Chess Records where he recorded his debut single, Look At Me Now. He then began performing in folk clubs and coffee houses in Chicago, becoming strongly influenced by the music of John Coltrane. During this project period, he briefly performed in a duo with David Crosby in Chicago and New York City. He met Samuel Charters of Prestige Records in 1964 and the following year they recorded his debut album. Charters then took the tapes away with him into the Mexican desert and the album was eventually released in 1968 as the new folk sound of Terry Callier. Two of Callier's songs, Spin 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 and It's About Time, were recorded by the psychedelic rock band H.P. Lovecraft in 1968 as part of the H.P. Lovecraft 2 album. H.P. Lovecraft featured fellow Chicago folk club singer George Edwards, who would go on to co-produce several tracks for Callier in 1969. He continued to perform in Chicago and in 1970 joined the Chicago Songwriters Workshop set up by Jerry Butler. He and partner Larry Wade wrote material for Chess and its subsidiary cadet label, including The Dells' 1972 hit, The Love We Had Stays On My Mind, as a result of which he was awarded his own recording contract with Cadet as a singer-songwriter. Three crit critically acclaimed albums, but commercially unsuccessful, followed, produced by Charles Stepney, so it was Occasional Rain in 1972, what Colour Is Love, also in 1972, and I Just Can't Help Myself in 1973. These demonstrated that Callier's influences included soul, jazz, funk, psychedelia and classical music. Subsequently, he toured with George Benson, Gil Scott Heron and others. Cadet and its parent label Chess was sold in 1976 and Callier was then dropped from the label. The Songwriters Workshop closed in 1976. The following year, Don Mizell signed him to a new contract with his jazz fusion division at Electra Records, resulting in the R&B orientated Fire on Ice from 1977 and Turn You to Love from 1978. The opening track of the later album, Sign of the Times, was used as the theme tune of radio DJ Frankie Crocker and became Callier's only US chart success reaching number 78 on the R&B chart in 1979. The single prompted his appearance at the Montreal Jazz Festival where Meisel presented him in the Electrica Jazz Fusion Night Showcase along with Grover Washington, Dee Dee Bridgewater and Lee Ritnor. When Mizell moved out to work with Stevie Wonder in 1980, Callier was dropped from the label. Callier continued to perform and tour until 1983 when he gained custody of his daughter and retired from music to take classes in computer programming landing a job at the University of Chicago and returning to college during the evenings to pursue a degree in sociology. He re-emerged from his obscurity in the late 1980s when British DJs discovered his old recordings and began to play his songs in clubs. As did jazz records, head Eddie Pillier reissued the little-known Callier recording from 1983, I Don't Want to See Myself Without You, and brought him to play clubs in Britain. From 1991, he began to make regular trips to play gigs during his vacation time from work. In the late 1990s, Callier began his comeback to recorded music, collaborating with Urban Species on their 1997 EP, Religion and Politics, and contributed to Beth Orton's Best Bit EP in 1997, before releasing the album Timepiece in 1988, which won the United Nations Time for Peace Award for Outstanding Artistic Achievement Contribution to World Peace. 
His colleagues at the University of Chicago, however, did not know of Kelly as live as a musician, but after the award, the news of his work as a musician became widely known and subsequently led to his dismissal by the university. How nice of them. So as well as touring internationally, Callier continued his recording career, releasing five albums after Timepiece, including Lifetime from 1999, Alive from 2001, Speak Your Peace from 2002, featuring Paul Weller on the single Brother to Brother, Golden Apples of the Sun from 2003, featuring the words of W.B. Yeats' poem, The Son of the Wandering Ingus, and Looking Out from 2004. May 2009 saw his album Hidden Conversation featuring Massive Attack released on Mr. Bongo Records. In 2001, Callier performed Saturn Doll for the Red Hot organization's compilation album Red Hot Indigo, a tribute to Duke Ellington, which raised money for various charities devoted to increasing AIDS awareness and fighting the disease. And sadly, Terry Callier died from cancer on October 27, 2012, aged just 67. Now, I would go and check out Terry Kelly's music on Spotify or whatever platform that you use to stream music. Maybe even go out and buy one of his records because they are superb. I got into Terry Kelly from my eldest brother, Stuart, and I think my middle brother, Matt. Matt went absolutely crazy for Terry Callier. So he went and brought a lot of the CDs from that and it was from that that I listened to a load of songs. And the one that really plucked my kind of ears right up was the song that I'm gonna play for you next. And it's called Ordinary Joe. There's another one I was gonna put on there, but it's a bit long, seven minutes. It's called You're Gonna Miss Your Candy Man. Now as an introduction, blimey, that is funky. So you crank it up, boom, go for it. But yeah, listen to Ordinary Joe. It's beautiful. And for my opening line, I might try to indicate my state of mind. I turn you on. I tell you that I'm laughing just to keep from crying Pretty music, when you hear it Keep on trying to get near it A little rhythm for your spirit oh, But that's what it's for, come on in, here's the door And I've seen a sparrow get high And waste his time in the sky it's easy to fly He's just a little bit freer than I Now here's a mystery And maybe you can help to make it clear to me When you're fast asleep Then what is it that's lighting up the dreams you see All of your tears can't conceal it And all of your prayers may not reveal it you got soul so you can feel it And when you make the scene, well you know what I mean Hey, I've seen a sparrow get high And waste his time in the sky He thinks it's easy to fly He's just a little bit freer than I 
down here on the ground When you find folks are giving you the running round Keep your game up tight And if you must just take your secrets underground Now politicians I try to speech you Mad color watchers I try to teach you Very few will really try to reach you If you lost me in a stack, that's okay Come on, Black Now I'd be the last to deny That I'm just an average guy And don't you know each little bird in the sky Is just a little bit freer than I Hey, ordinary Joe Although they say you're just a lazy so-and-so What they think is real Is nothing but an animated puppet show So don't let time and space confuse you And don't let name and form abuse you When you think Joe Williams blues you In the light of the sun you can see how they So yeah, Terry Callier, yeah, very sad day back in uh, 2012 when he passed away. I mean, uh, as I said, only 67 and such a, you see any interviews with him, you read about him, such a humble guy, you know, and um, yeah, just shame he didn't get the recognition at the time, you know, when his album was really similar to Nick Drake, you know, but we obviously, we lost him a lot sooner than uh, Terry Callier. Next up, is Rob's Records. So, as the title of the show may allude to, that this show's record is by Elvis Presley, and the song is called Stranger in My Own Hometown. Now, interestingly, it was written by a gentleman called Percy Mayfield. Who? Exactly. I didn't realise who that was either. But then, when I looked him up and had a little bit of research about him, he wrote the song, Hit the Road Jack, which was made famous by Ray Charles. And I think it was by Ray Charles covering that song by Percy that he then got Percy signed to the same label that Ray Charles was on. So, win-win. But you know, this, uh, this song is from the um, album From Memphis to Vegas slash From Vegas to Memphis. And it's the um, 11th studio album and the second live album to be released by Elvis Presley. It was released in October 14, 19... <laughs> it was released on October 14, 1969. And it's a double album. So the first album, uh, titled In Person at the International Hotel Las Vegas, Nevada, contains obviously, as you would expect, live recordings of his, of his hits at the uh, International Hotel in Nevada. Whilst the second album, which this song is from, is titled Back in Memphis, and contains entirely new material recorded at American Sound Studio in Memphis. So the album peaked at number 12 on the Billboard 200 and was certified gold 
on December 13th, 1969 by the Recording Industry Association of America. Now, I was never really into Elvis that much, I think, growing up. I mean, I know um, I've said listening to the Beatles in the 60s, but Elvis, I don't know, growing up, it always seemed to be a bit of a joke. Mainly because I think it was there was this Elvis impersonator called Morris Clark in Great Yarmouth. Um, really well known apparently and like one of the best um, Elvis impersonators. Um, unbeknownst to me, I ended up dating his uh, stepdaughter. Um, but she absolutely hated his guts. She thought he was a bit of an asshole. Uh, I think he died a few years back. But um, yeah, I saw a few of his uh, shows, but he just seemed to go, um, um, a lot. And there used to be this guy who used to go to all his shows and he'd go up and sing Return to Sender and he would sound infinitely miles better than Morris Clark. So it was almost kind of like, yeah, yeah, just do the one song and, you know, piss off, you're embarrassing me here, buddy. Yeah, I remember buying a cheap Elvis CD of early stuff and he was like, oh, you know, I'm not, you know, I remember sharing it to him and he was like, oh, you know, I'm not that mad into Elvis. And then went into detail about every single song that I was, you know, playing, which I don't mind. You know, I think if you're into an artist, then, you know, go for it. It wasn't until a few years later where I just kind of heard, you know, these hits, yeah, the greatest hits of Elvis, you know, not delve, you know, done any kind of deep dive into his uh, albums or what have you. And it was only when I was dating this girl, oh, probably about five years later, um, she lived in York. Her, I think it was either her mum or her dad had this uh, live in Memphis, um, or yeah, from Memphis to, uh, to Vegas, from Vegas to Memphis, double album. And I ripped it off, burnt it onto a blank CD, because I thought, oh, you know, I'll give it another go and listen to it. And the uh, From Memphis album, it's amazing. There's a song on there, A Little Bit of Green, which I think sounds like a song written about cannabis, but yeah, it's probably just that state of mind, uh, that haziness of the time. But one of the songs that really did kind of stick out was A Stranger in My Own Hometown. And I just think it's probably one of Elvis's best records ever. But again, not many people have heard it. So this is, well, yeah, it's probably the reason whilst, you know, whilst I, uh, why I have chosen this record. Almost like, you know, when I mentioned about doing the playlist, every show I'm essentially thinking of, you know, a playlist, a very mini one. So I've got to kind of really condense into what I'm trying to uh, not get across, but just make it flow, have some kind of connection to it or, or something. I won't go any more on about the record because I think, you know, ultimately it's up to personal taste. Either you like Elvis or you don't like Elvis. Because I remember someone saying either you're an Elvis fan or a Beatles fan or an Elvis fan, or the Stones. And I like all of them. I mean, I think the Stones have been going on for too long. It's like they're trying to prove a point, for Christ's sake. But um, don't, I don't listen to anything from the 80s onwards. Maybe the unplugged stuff, but then that just sounded so thin. I saw them at Glastonbury, um, 2013. And that sounded absolutely terrible. At a later show, I'll pull out this bit that it just kind of made me think, flipping egg, Nick, give it, you know, retire, mate, you know? And I didn't think the drums were that good, you know, it just sounded really thin. You know, it's almost like watching the Smashing Pumpkins live, like their albums are layered and layered and just hit you, you know. But when you see them live, it's like, uh, no, not getting it. So yes, without further ado, here is Elvis Presley's Stranger in My Own Hometown from my record collection, which I think I got 
from a record fair in Orpington. I think I only paid like four quid for it and I was just like, oh, this is gonna sound beaten up. But yeah, it's not too bad actually. Well, I'll let you make up your own mind. So um, here's Elvis. Stranger, my own, my own 
Mum of two, Dawn Sager, was enjoying a snack before work when she discovered a heart-shaped crisp inside her packet of Walker's Ready Salted Crisps. Delighted by the sweet snack, she sent photos to her friends before munching away on the unusual crisp. A supermarket worker has told how she unknowingly ate the crisp, which could have won her £100,000 after discovering this perfect heart-shaped potato. So... Whilst she made this unusual discovery, she was amused to see the sweet shape soon after Valentine's Day, so didn't think anything of eating the crisp after sending the photos to her friends. But by the time they replied and warned her it could be a winning crisp, it was too late. Thankfully, the single parent took the news in her stride. Dawn Forty from Shropshire said, I was gutted, but you know what? It's not the end of the world, is it? I would have made my life a little bit happier. Well, £100,000 would have made my life a hell of a lot happier. But I haven't got the money, so it doesn't make any difference. Well, it does, because you could probably put the heat in on, I'd say. Talking of the crisp, which she reckons could have been the best of all, she added, everyone's like, oh my God, you could have had the money. But it doesn't matter. I haven't got that money in my life. It might have made me miserable. Highly unlikely. However, Dawn has been encouraging shoppers to keep an eye out for any unusual crisps and not make her mistake. Or, no, you don't want that one that tastes disgusting, give it to me. <clears throat> Talking of snacks. Well, there's nothing wrong with eating your favorite sugary snack every now and then. It can be an issue if you develop an addiction to it. However, one woman has a more concerning problem than gorging on crisps, cakes, or chocolate as she admitted to being an addicted to eating toilet roll. Keisha from Chicago, America, appeared on TLC's My Strange Addiction to spread awareness about her unusual habit known as something, as an eating disorder, xylophagia, an eating disorder involving the consumption of paper. The 34-year-old has been munching her way through around 75 sheets every day for the last 23 years, with her mum saying it's like crack to her. I'm sure there's a joke in there about toilet paper and crack, but yeah. Keisha believes her addiction is linked to childhood trauma as in sixth grade, she moved out of her family home to live with her grandma and auntie. She said, I think I crave it because I love the way the toilet paper feels on my tongue, how it dissolves when it hits my tongue. Although she prefers two-ply, as it's easier to digest, Keisha says she experiences stomach cramps and has a hard time going to the bathroom if she eats too much. I wonder if she needs to wipe her bum when she's finished. Anyway, her mum said every time I see Keisha, she'd have tissue in her hand and she'd try to hide it behind her back. If you tried to take it from her, she'd get upset. I've never been able to understand why she eats tissue and I never will. However, Keisha never realised quite how harmful her condition is until psychiatrist Kim Dennis told her about the impact it's having on her body. Kim said, if your intestines rupture inside your abdomen, that could be fatal and could be fatal pretty quickly. You're putting your body at risk and really playing Russian roulette with your life. 
Knowing she'll struggle to go cold turkey to overcome her addiction, he advised her to swap toilet roll for wet wipes as they're moist and indigestible. Now, I would have suggested eating that, you know, that stuff when you were little, that used to be edible paper, they used to call it. You can get it to put on cakes now. You cut out shapes and you can put it on little cupcakes and, and what have you. What, rice paper. Want to give a rice paper to eat? That still melts on the tongue and everything else, and it's probably the same as anyway. Maybe I should take, yeah. Scott. We've all heard that some men are so-called mummy's boys, but it turns out that this can be taken to a level you'd never heard thought possible. Case in point, this alleged story about a man who was caught doing something that would be enough to end a wedding just before his nuptials were due to take place. All was recently revealed on TikTok on The Unfiltered Bride, where the hosts discussed a story that they heard from a makeup artist. It all went down when host Georgie Mitchell, who is a professional wedding planner, asked her co-host Beth what would be enough to end a wedding at 11th hour in a bathroom. Georgie said, The bride walked into the toilet when she saw his enough to end the wedding. Beth went on to speculate about all the usual things you might expect from walking into the groom with another woman or him doing drugs. Her husband-to-be was being breastfed by his mum. It was at this point that Georgie said that the bride likely had no idea that her partner was still breastfed when she agreed to marry him. She said, why was his mum producing milk? Georgie replied, she's obviously been doing it continuously to get to that point. So yes, nearly the end of the show. So it's just time for one last little game, which I like to call So yes, new listeners to the show, what it is is I play the last five seconds of a song, you need to guess what that song is. So this is the last five seconds of a song which I'll play twice, so here is the first time listening to it, so here we go. Now I can't really come up with any clues, which, uh, well, three of the two things are good for you, but yeah, that's in the song title, three things. You got it? Maybe a little bit longer. I know my good friend Carl, he listened to it. He said, if he just had a little bit more time, you might think he could have got it. So here is the song again. Before I go, before I play the song, next show I'll talk to you about CDs. Because I think I've covered, covered off tapes, vinyl, MP3s. I seem to have left out CDs, which was the main format that I used to listen to my music to when I was growing up. I used to go to Prison Leisure all the time and uh, buy muchos CDs. So yes, did you get the song? So I'll let you know who it is because what it is, once the song's finished, I'll end the show and I'll catch you at the next one. So the song was Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll by Ian Jury. Thank you, good night, God bless, and I'll catch you at the next one. Sex and drugs and rock and roll Is all my brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll Very good indeed. Keep your silly ways or throw them out.
of your ways I've been there and I know lots of other ways What a jolly bad show If all you ever do is business you don't like Sex and drugs and rock and roll Sex and drugs and rock and roll Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing, grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Walter Mitty. See my tailor, he's called Simon. I know it's going to fit. You're quite welcome, it is free Don't do nothing that is cutless You know what that'll make you be They will try their tricky device Trap you with the ordinary Get your teeth into a small slice The cake of liberty and rock and roll Sex and drugs and rock and roll Sex and drugs and rock and roll Sex and drugs and rock and roll This is the end.